0: The new Northeast River Valley Park on the weekly local audio news broadcast. This week, the city of Edmonton got a surprise new, bigger than Horlac as of yet unnamed, River Valley Park.
1: Plus, the Capital Line extension gets its scope trimmed and new patio rules come into effect. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.
0: Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 222. Last week when we were recording, we were just about to have smoke roll in and ruin all of our long weekend plans. Uh, This week, as we're recording on Thursday, we had a nice week, clear blue skies. And as I'm looking outside, the smoke's rolling in again, Mac.
1: Yeah, I could smell a little bit on the way back uh, home here to, to record. I don't know if your weekend plans were entirely ruined, though, right, Troy? I see that you did get to meet Gary. I did. I went to Edmonton Cat Fest's
0: opening event, and Gary was everything I dreamed of and more. That cat, he must have been sedated or something because he was so (laughs) chill. There was a line of people in Home's Live Pets coming up, sitting down beside him, petting him, taking pictures. And he's just laying there, not a care in the world, happy as a clam or as a cat. In
1: this case, well, hopefully the smoke didn't affect him too much. And uh, I'm glad you got to meet the infamous Gary.
0: Of course, as you're listening to this, you can still go participate in some fun cat events. Uh, the Cat Edmonton Cat Fest runs until the 28th. So get out there and enjoy it. Like I'm sure you all enjoy the weekly rapid fire segment. Lyft has expanded their ride booking service to Edmonton and Calgary in a move that the company says will be a huge boon to consumer choice. Said Lyft CEO David Risher, quote, Edmontonians know that they are going to have their livelihoods and markets upended by Silicon Valley venture capitalists looking to exploit them for a quick buck. But now with Lyft entering the market, they get to choose which one.
1: Air quality in Edmonton led to stalled May long weekend plans for many businesses and families, with many businesses within the city actually recommending that their potential clients simply stay home. Christy DeJong, CEO of Edmonton Experiences, said, quote, All the pollution in the air this weekend after UCP MLAs gathered to talk about their platform is just too acrid to recommend that anyone go outside without filtration. Oh, and the wildfire smoke is bad, too.
0: Downtown Spark started yesterday, but thankfully we've had some rain this week and the fire department dispatched it quickly.
1: Speaking Municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton. Every week we bring you the latest on municipal affairs in our city, including what city council's up to. And this week we have a new ad for you. Councillor Michael Jans has made it possible for us to tell you about An Evening with Dr. Irvin Waller, author of The Science and Secrets of Ending Violent Crime, coming up on June 1st. Dr. Waller will be in Edmonton for a presentation and Q&A with community partners, including Reach Edmonton, the Edmonton Federation of Community Leagues, Public Interest Alberta, the Parkland Institute, and others. Learn about Dr. Waller's advice on how communities can improve community safety and health by using evidence-based approaches that deliver a strong return on investment. With the police funding formula debate due back at council in just a couple of weeks, it's great timing. The event takes place at 7 p.m. on June 1st at the TELUS Center on the University of Alberta campus. And you can learn more and RSVP for the event at michaeljans.ca. The big news this week, Mac, comes in the form of a park that, despite being 190 acres large, came out of nowhere seem to come out of nowhere. I don't think we've seen any mention of this at council recently, although I did do a little digging and found a, a little bit of historical information which we can share. But the news of course is that the city is opening a new park currently called the Northeast River Valley Park later this summer. It's uh, up in the northeast part of the city, 17th Street and 153rd Avenue. But those are in the northeast quadrant, not the northwest like most of the city these days. So that's very far in the northeast, I think is the takeaway there. Very far in the northeast, yeah. I mean, there's a whole bunch of developments slated to take place around there. So I suppose it's a good thing that people who are going to be working and living in that area will have access to uh, a great outdoor space like this park. It's bigger than Horlach Park, as you teased off the top. Troy, 190 acres compared to Horlick Park's 168 acres. Uh, So this land used to be called Our Lady Queen of Peace
0: Ranch North and is like the thing you would go to for a summer camp or some sort of event. It's this area that was privately owned in the top half of the city, but uh, now it is owned by the city and will be an amenity for... Like you said, this new booning development that may contain up to 70,000 residents in the near future.
1: Yeah, that Our Lady Queen of Peace Ranch is interesting. So, this was a nonprofit organization that owned and managed this land and used it, as you said, for programming for children and youth who face physical, mental, or financial challenges. The city gifted about 21 acres of that land to the organization in 2007 to bring the total parcel to what it is now, around 190 acres of land. What I was able to find out is in 2019, just a little bit before the pandemic happened, this organization had been back and forth at council because it had run into financial difficulties. It was having trouble paying the property taxes as well as the local improvement taxes on this property. And they suggested in February of 2019 that the city of Edmonton actually take over the property. And that was something that council was going to be uh, deciding upon. Unfortunately, as far as I can tell, at least from a quick search here, Troy, the, the council trail, the document trail goes cold after that. But what we do know is at the time, city and administration were looking at doing that. And they also had the right of first refusal to purchase the land for a dollar should you know something happen to the organization. And the organization could only sell it to another nonprofit doing the same thing, or of course, the city. So I think what we can probably gather happened here is that they did and sort out their financial issues. The city took over the land or maybe acquired it from the organization and has now turned it into a big new park for Edmonton to enjoy.
0: That organization did sound like they were providing a pretty valuable service and something that uh, a lot of Edmontonians could get behind. But in that loss, we get a quite substantial gain. I don't know if you've ever cycled around the North End Trails. Just as you get outside the Henday, basically all the way to Fort Saskatchewan, these absolutely gorgeous cycling facilities, well-maintained, beautiful. It's very quiet and weaving throughout nature. There's a golf course there, unfortunately, but you know, you take what you can get. Yeah, But this is just another amenity in that area in a very sort of like gorgeous naturalized space. And I, I think residents would be excited. I think a lot of Edmontonians are going to be excited to visit it. And that brought me to the FAQ page where the city of Edmonton, you know, they're addressing questions from residents. The first one, of course, being, will I be able to walk or bike there? And they say, yes, this park is connected to the River Valley Trail Network. Cycle and pedestrian access is available all the way from West Edmonton to East Edmonton. That's great. The next question in the FAQ logically is, how far is this park from downtown Edmonton? And the city replies, the drive is approximately 25 minutes. (laughs) No more information.
1: (laughs) That sounds like car culture in Edmonton at its finest, right? We'll we'll say that it's connected to trails and and cycling, but really, we think most people are going to drive there. So we better give you the estimate in driver time, ignoring, of course, that you can just get that in Google Maps anyway.
0: Of course, the final thing about the name of this park, um, it is very blandly named in the same way that End of the World was renamed to, what is it, Keeler Point Viewing Area, the most boring possible name is currently assigned to this park, but the city does plan to make good on that. And with consultation with Edmontonians,
1: develop and release a new name later in the year. Yeah, it said Edmontonians will have a chance to put in input on that name as part of a concept planning process that's going to happen later this year. So I understand the park will open before that's finished, but we could have a, a new name potentially by the end of the year. And I would think that the naming committee would be involved in this and that we've got some rules around policies maybe around how things should be named. I'm thinking probably an Indigenous name or something like that for that area would make a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, especially going from Our Lady Queen of Peace Ranch North, I can expect uh, a correction back to something uh, more on the Indigenous side uh, would be appropriate.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: A mainstay topic on this podcast is, of course, trains. Uh, We are both big fans of trains, and the city is big fans of making train projects impossibly complex and arduous to build. So it gives us lots of content to talk about. And this week is no different because the Capital Line expansion is changing a little bit, ostensibly to trim down the scope In order to stay within budget
1: yeah this is the capital line extension south uh, from century park station the project has a budget of about a billion dollars and costs have gone up and so the scope of the project needs to change in some way in order to try and remain within the budget and council did discuss uh, some options on what they could do to you know trim the scope and and uh and find those cost savings and there was a few things that were up for debate including maybe even cancelling one of the stations. So there's a planned station at Twinbrooks. And some people probably were, were thinking that's not a good thing. Why would we cancel one of the stations? There's already so few stations along this line. But there was also people who live in that area who were opposed to having a station in their neighborhood. Ultimately, council decided that they would not cancel that station. And it will go forward despite you know, some, of, some other changes to uh, the plan here.
0: And I wanted to explicitly highlight this because uh, we're talking about Edmonton being car culture at best. Twin Brooks is very unique in the city of Edmonton in that there is only one road to access Twin Brooks. Twin Brooks is entirely sandwiched by ravines, river valleys, and the Henday. So you can only get in and out of Twin Brooks in a car by 111th Street. Uh, So, you know, if traffic or a collision backs up, people in Twin Brooks are quite reasonably trapped a lot of the time. This has been a complaint that has previously gone to council when Twin Brooks residents were asking for a new bridge or extremely expensive infrastructure projects. So you'll imagine my um, giddy, ironic smile when Twin Brooks residents are saying this billion dollar project to give us mass (laughs) transit access to leave our community. Nah, just skip us. Go right past. And I'm glad council had the good sense to say, no, we're not going to remove stops on our billion dollar mass transit. Transit expansion.
1: 100%. If we're going to build this thing, we might as well build some stations along the way. On the opposite side of the car culture here, the things they did approve to reduce the scope I thought were quite interesting. So, one is they'll eliminate about 800 of the stalls at the planned park and ride station uh, for the Heritage Valley station. So, fewer cars can park there. Sounds interesting, actually. I don't think we need to have giant park and rides everywhere. I know that's maybe not uh, the most popular opinion, but that's a lot of parking stalls and not doing anything to encourage other modes of transportation to get to the train. So as an
0: aside, I
1: don't know if you've seen a Davies station on the New Valley line. Absolute monstrosity. Oh, horrible. And that's the other change here, which is that the Heritage Valley station will now be built at ground level instead of above grade. And that's ultimately what leads to the elimination of a lot of those uh, parking stalls in the park and ride. But I feel like that's a good thing, right? I've talked about this before. The low floor LRT to the southeast Davies is not a low-floor station by any stretch of the imagination. Having this line built right at ground level, I think, is a win, no?
0: Of course, this Capital Line extension will continue to be high floor LRT as the rest of the Capital Line is. But just because your lines are a bit higher and you have to step up onto the train does not mean that your stations have to be elevated sky palaces.
1: No, absolutely not. I mean, you need to only look at Stadium LRT Station, the revamped Stadium LRT Station on the existing line to see what could be done for so-called high floor LRT. Like that station is almost as welcoming and easy to get onto as some of the low floor LRT stations on the new valley line. So, you know, it doesn't need to be way up in the sky. That is a station Davies built strictly for cars, not for people. The only other small changes here, cuts to the original budget, are reduction in the storage space and the maintenance facility. So instead of 50 LR uh, light rail vehicles, they'll only be able to hold 40. And also they're going to have the minimum number of vehicles instead of the full complement of 24. So those the other things they did to try and save some money here. But all in all, this extension is going to continue to go forward with the stations as planned.
0: And of course, this is very important too, because the end connection of this line will eventually be the site of a new hospital in the city of Edmonton, assuming Government planning continues to go as one might hope. Connecting hospitals via transit is really important for the healthcare of our citizens. For sure. Also, pretty important healthcare drinking water. 100% of the people who abstain permanently from water die. That is a true <laughs> science fact. And we know that, especially with extreme weather swings, when we have heavy smoke, when you have heat, and are uh, more extreme summer temperatures that we've seen over the past decade. Water for our houseless individuals, for our dogs, for even people just walking down the street is pretty important. And this is why we've been excited in previous years to see the temporary water bottle stations up here in the city of Edmonton. And they are once again back this year with an even larger complement of temporary stations.
1: Yeah, so 17 opened over the long weekend. These are these, you know, temporary blue uh, little posts that uh, are attached by a hose to a fire hydrant. And uh, they're going to have 20 this year, so expanded up to 20, which is good. The city also said that these uh, locations will be chosen the, to be near public washrooms wherever possible, and that they are also installing some temporary public washrooms as part of the ever-evolving, never-quite-being-implemented public washroom strategy. But as you say, this is a good thing for everybody in Edmonton, but especially you know people experiencing houselessness uh, to have access to this water. The only downside, I suppose, about this program, Troy, is that, again it's temporary. Every
0: time I walk by one of these temporary facilities, I'm always excited because one, sometimes I get to refill my water bottle. Mm -hmm. Um, But two, it's just good public planning. We already have these fire hydrants. Let's use this asset that we installed to give people drinking water. But then I always wonder, why don't we give people drinking water? Why is this an afterthought? Why aren't we taking some of these and making the most successful ones permanent year over year and then we have less temporary things to roll out. It's the same commentary I have when each year we roll out summer streets on, for example, Saskatchewan Drive, which has no need to ever have two traffic lanes. And we just end up feeling like a loss at the end of summer. Same thing with water bottle stations. I'm going cross-country skiing. I'm going for a walk out in the snow. You get thirsty in winter, too. It, it happens. And you're not supposed to eat that yellow snow.
1: <laughs> That's true. That would be bad for your health. But having access to water is important. And, you know, this is kind of related for me to the public washrooms strategy and uh, and the constant discussion we've had about that and that we already have infrastructure built in many places. We already have public washrooms in many places. They're just not accessible. They're not open to the public. They're locked. Same kind of thing is with the, the case with water stations, actually. I'm thinking even of near where I live here in Dakota Park, there's a dog run, there's the park, and then there's the community garden. The community garden has two water faucets in it, which is fantastic for gardeners like us, because we don't have to haul our water to the garden, we just turn on the faucet. But the folks in the dog park have no access to it. It's like over this giant fence, like you need to be inside there to get access to it. So if you want to fill up the the dish for the dogs, it can't be done unless somebody's in the garden, or you figure out how to, you know, maneuver the water feature to sort of get enough water into the bowl that you can carry it across. But there's the point is there's infrastructure there. We could have a permanent tap that is accessible to people who don't have the lock code to the garden. Why don't we do that? Why don't we build more, you know, take advantage of more of these built-in opportunities for uh, for this kind of infrastructure and just turn it out outward toward the public? I think that would be a, an improvement. So maybe if you're at the city of Edmonton listening to this and you're thinking about how exciting it is to have our temporary water station plan back in action. Can can we see some permanent ones next year, please? And of course, the other thing to assess is we are
0: putting these taps in front of public washrooms, as you said, off the top. Maybe just do a quick check, um, look up from the tap that you're installing and check, is that washroom locked? If yeah. so, unlock it. Unlock it. That would be That would be good. I would love that. Of course, public infrastructure can be hidden in many different ways. Locks on bathroom is one way, but installation of patios over sidewalk is newly another way that Edmontonians are losing access to the public infrastructure. And that's come to a head in the past couple of weeks with the new patio rules fully coming into effect with the summer weather.
1: Yeah, Tapper did a a really good story. Our reporter Colin Gallant looked into this. Uh, We had heard from lots of readers, actually, who are curious about this. We've seen that new grants had been approved and announced by the Downtown Business Association in the city to support patios. We started to have beautiful weather. People wanted to sit outside. And you could walk around downtown especially and you'd see that there were many patios not open, including restaurants that previously had patios in past years that just didn't have them open. So we wanted to find out what happened there and why some of those had not yet opened. And what we learned is that the city actually launched some new rules for patios uh, earlier this year in, in January. And the reason they did that was, you know, there's a few reasons. One was there was some new priorities for the budget cycle. They wanted to better reflect increases in car, pedestrian, and active transportation traffic compared to the height of the pandemic. So we had these temporary patio rules during the pandemic. And now that we're I mean, I guess we're mostly past the pandemic, you know. I find it really hard to talk about the situation we are in now
0: because we're not post-pandemic, but for all intents and purposes, we are,
1: you know. Right. Yeah. So the temporary way that we handled patios, they wanted to change that. But the biggest thing, and I'm, I'm really supportive of this, was to improve accessibility along the sidewalks and roads and things like that where these patios are located. And so... You know, these new rules came into effect. Restaurants that had patios in the past now had to conform to these new rules. And in some cases, it was a simple change. In other cases, it was a more complicated change. I like that the city has gone a little bit more organized here. They have four different patio sizes now. Each of them has slightly different requirements for, you know, the kind of built infrastructure and the amount of space that there needs to be, whether they can cover the full sidewalk, all that kind of thing. And overall, this is a really positive thing for pedestrians, for active transportation users, and I think for people who sit on the patios themselves as well. So as we learned a bit more about this, I found myself feeling a little less uh, sympathetic toward the restaurants and a little more encouraged and uh, and happy about the changes we're going to see here. Since we published this story last week, just in my own neck of the woods here on 104th Street, three patios have gone up, including two that are of the built-out kind, where they've got walls and, you know, wooden uh, wooden framing and uh, and some concrete pillars and things like that. And Dosk, who we talk about in the story, um, who's the, the ones that we talked to who had kind of run into the most issues, I guess, transitioning to their new patio, they started pressure washing today. So I feel like that patio could be opening soon. Ah, uh, well, we'll keep an
0: eye on it. Of course, all of this Extra regulation stems from a pretty legitimate concern, and you and I have experienced it both downtown and White Ave, where a patio would extend over the entirety of the sidewalk. You'd have these dinky plastic ramps to get up and get shoved into basically traffic, and wheelchair users, cyclists, people rolling a cart, strollers, yeah, Yeah. very difficult to use, which always led me to the question, why do we insist, if we're taking the traffic lane anyway, to put the patio on the sidewalk and rope people around. Why doesn't the sidewalk maintain? And we put up some tables in the parking lane. This seems like a solved problem in every other city. And it baffles me why we have not yet been able to do that. Because previously, there were liquor regulations preventing, you know, patios from crossing a sidewalk. Those regulations don't exist anymore. We can have the best summer ever. I believe that was actually part of the ucp sweeping regulations easing some alcohol restrictions so you know why not why not try that
1: yeah i'm all over that i think that makes a lot of sense there's no problem walking through the sidewalk with the patio on the other side like you're sitting on the patio it doesn't matter if people are walking by it's better having people walk by than cars actually is uh, is the experience i think what i'm you know looking for here is that improved accessibility like you mentioned i think that's really important and also just you know even for able-bodied people who are walking down the sidewalk, it was pretty tight along a lot of those patios in recent years. And if we can make that a little bit more spacious, uh, that would be good. The other thing is just consistency. So even if we don't do your idea here and just you know move the patio over to the street, some consistency in what they look like, I think, is really important. It was always crazy to me that at Durinku on Jasper Avenue, between 103rd and 104th, you had one of those dinky little yellow plastic ramps and pylons. And like you really were walking into traffic, like it really felt horribly unsafe. But just a couple of blocks further west, you've got the Rocky Mountain Ice House, which had this nice, you know, wooden walkway with metal uh, railings along either side. It's You know, you feel a lot safer on that. And it's just why is there such a disparity? So if these rules can lead to some greater consistency with Accessibility in mind, then I think that's a huge
0: win. We have been tracking the Healthy Streets Operation Center since it was announced. Uh, this was something that always seemed a bit like vaporware to us. We kept hearing about it, but it was never quite a real thing. Uh, but now, a year after the uh, tragedy in Chinatown, it is a really real thing that is in a physical space that has an awning with its name on it.
1: Yeah, Councillor Ann Stevenson was among the folks who gathered in Chinatown on May 19th to remember the two men who were murdered in attacks about a year ago. And uh, one of the things she posted a picture of was this New Healthy Streets Operation Center. So there is actually a, a building now with the the name of it over the top, as you mentioned. And the police have been talking about the center as well, you know, crediting it with having a positive impact on crime in the area. Of course, not everyone feels that way. Uh, Christina Trang, one of the the daughters of one of the men who was tragically killed in Chinatown, you know, said not enough is being done to improve safety in the area. And of course. Felt like some recent decisions that we've talked about, including the approval of the new Boyle Street Community Services Facility, would further create a difficult situation in Chinatown. And the the Chinatown and Area Business Association remains opposed to that as well. But yes, the police actually have a physical building now in Chinatown. Okay, so we've got this physical building that the police are saying is
0: having a material impact. Has it had one? What have we seen as the results of this Healthy Streets Operations Center?
1: Well, what we've heard from the police so far is that there's been a decrease in violent and nonviolent crime in these uh, er- in these areas where the HSOC is meant to uh, support. They've intervened in more than three thousand engagements in the community. Paramedics from the HSOC have assessed more than one hundred and eighty-seven patients to help them get help, and that means they've deferred one hundred and twenty-three ambulances, which is really interesting because. There's a huge shortage of ambulances across the province. These are all kind of high level stats that they're giving us, but they are expecting to have a report go to the police commission, the first quarterly report for the Healthy Streets Operation Center next month in June. So I expect we'll get a little bit more detail about the specifics of the impact it's had.
0: Yeah, and I'm certainly interested in seeing that detail because for me, this is a really hard circle to square because just a few weeks ago, the Edmonton Police Service was raising the alarm bell about... Increase in violent crime in downtown Edmonton, which includes Chinatown. Um, And to say that there has been a measurable drop within Chinatown, when taken the two together, that means the drop in Chinatown must have been absolutely precipitous, such that even given the massive increases in the entire downtown area, it has seen a decrease within Chinatown, which doesn't square with the statements we just heard from Christina Trang that not enough has been done. If it's true that there's been such a marked and precipitous drop relative to the downtown area which is increasing in crime, that should be pretty noticeable, right? That that should be stark.
1: And I hope we'll, we'll see that in the report. We should, of course, keep in mind, there's probably some emotion at play here and you're never going to do enough for loved ones who are lost. Not to say that what she's saying isn't necessarily true, but it could be informed by, you know, a unique perspective that she unfortunately uh, that she unfortunately has. The police also say, you know, that the addition of the sheriffs has uh, had an impact here. We've been skeptical of that on this show in the past. I'll be curious to know if there's any detail about that. And, and the other thing, that we've talked about in the past, too, is just that the timing of this is such that we're getting into summer. There are more places for people to go when the weather is nicer. They can disperse a little bit and be in other places. And so that might have an impact here as well. It could be you know, a confluence of things that are impacting those numbers and not just this Healthy Streets Operation Center.
0: Well, Mac, you mentioned the sheriffs, and that is a segue into The last piece of news we will cover this week, and we are not daveberta.ca. We're not going to be your go to provincial elections podcast, but I thought it was exceptionally interesting in this, the last week of the campaign, one which I think is fair to say has been newsworthy. Uh, There has been many a news story written during this campaign about uh, events, whether it's the premier having been found to violate conflict of interest. Regulation, or the endless string of gaffes uh, or grainy videos, as it were, that have come out. But I think given the context of this long campaign, which has been longer than the writ period for sure, the DRC, the Downtown Recovery Coalition, sent out a mailer to its membership detailing the party's promises and highlights from each party and what they might bring to Edmonton downtown. And after their thorough and market research, the best conclusion they were able to wa- walk away with is both parties
1: are great and equally good for downtown Edmonton. <laughs> <They> lo- <laughs> well, that's one interpretation, maybe. I'm not sure they would put it that way, but you might be right, Troy. They looked at two areas in particular, right? So safety and security was number one. And then the second was cleanliness and infrastructure. And what they think they tried to do is identify all the things in each of the two parties' platforms that address, you know, those concerns. And on safety and security, they said they've met with both parties. They've built, quote, thoughtful and strategic plans to address the issues we know all too well in the core. And they said the UCP takes a harder stance. The NDP plan is a little bit more collaborative. But as you say, neither party stands out to them. And then on cleanliness and infrastructure, you know, again, they say that uh, both parties have focused on building capacity in the healthcare system, and neither is specifically committed to working with municipalities. So not picking one or the other in that case as well. So your assessment, I think probably true, although a little bit of nuance there in terms of, I don't think they're saying both parties would be great. I think they're kind of saying neither party's doing anything special for us. I am
0: willing to say on this podcast, I'm going to take an editorial stance and say that as an Edmontonian in uh, Edmonton Strathcona, I would prefer a Rachel Notley victory to a Danielle Smith victory. Now, if this loses us, our listenership, Mac, I'm sorry. But I think especially on the infrastructure point, the DRC brings up that the UCP highlights that they have a plan for $2.3 billion to expand and improve Alberta's road and bridge network and help grow the economy. And to present that without criticism, having looked at the UCP, who one of their marquee achievements is absolutely slashing and eviscerating infrastructure funding for municipalities and w- without any context to present, oh, well, Danielle Smith said she's going to give $2 billion for roads and bridges. We're golden. I think really does a disservice to the members or, in fact, does a service to the members and highlights exactly who the DRC membership may in fact be.
1: I think that's all a very good point. It's also confusing to me why uh, $2.3 billion to expand roadways and bridges across the province is in this section about cleanliness and infrastructure from the Edmonton downtown recovery it Like, what are those things? Connect, those things do not seem to be connected to me in any way. You know, and I think what you mentioned off the top of this, gaffes, grainy videos, all the other things that are around this, you know, need to be taken into context as well. It's not as straightforward in any election as just looking at what do they put in their platforms. But overall, who do we think is more likely to have a positive impact on on downtown Edmonton? And I would come away with a similar analysis as you, Troy,
0: on that point. Well, of course, all of our analysis will be rendered sort of moot uh, on Monday when the provincial election happens. I will remind all of our listeners, I don't have to, but I will anyway. Please vote. Election date is may 29th it's important you can go to advanced polls they're open now and you can just get it done i have already done so on tuesday and it was smooth and easy and fun just like it is smooth easy and fun to read the pulse every morning it's taproot's daily news briefing it tells you what you need to know about edmonton every weekday morning and you get short informative updates about what's happening at city hall plus coverage of business tech food the arts and more you'll also get a little bit of whimsy with rotating features such as a moment in history You can check it out and subscribe at tapreadedmonton.ca. And that's all for this week, Mac. uh, When we record next, no matter what happens, the province will have changed. Uh, So maybe look forward to that. I'm nervous. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how to feel about that other than there will be feelings.
1: I think we'll probably uh, revisit the orange dot that we talked about four years ago on this podcast. Fingers crossed. All right. Knocking on
0: wood. I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Municipally. municipally.